Thank you for listening to the Institute of World Politics podcast. To learn more about our graduate programs in national security, international affairs, and intelligence, or to support our work in educating future leaders, please visit www.iwp.edu. So we're going to go ahead and get started. Um, good afternoon. Thank you for watching this virtual lecture event hosted by the Institute of World Politics. For those of you who are new, IWP is a graduate school of national security and international affairs. We have five master's degree programs, 18 certificates of study, and a new doctoral program. We also offer the opportunity to take a single course without having to pay an entire semester's worth of tuition costs. One can also audit such a course at a much less cost. If you're interested in learning more about us, please visit iwp.edu. This webinar event will be our ninth annual Ronald Reagan Intelligence Lecture. This evening, we will be hearing from Professor Darlene Almont. Professor Almont is a former US Air Force major with over 30 years of experience in the intelligence community. She is an assistant professor at the Director of National Intelligence and Defense Intelligence Agency's National Intelligence University, the U.S. government's accredited master's degree granting institution, where she teaches strategic intelligence courses at the top secret level. Additionally, she is an adjunct professor at IWP, where she teaches a course in estimative intelligence analysis and epistemology. Professor Almont, welcome. The floor is yours. Hi, thank you. Um, I just wanted to first thank you for holding this forum. I, when I was asked to give this discussion, I was um, approached and I was given a pretty free reign about what to discuss, but I decided I wanted to talk about um, my own research, but in the context of Reagan, because this is the Reagan series. So um, let's go ahead and get started. I'm gonna just now switch over to the slides. And in, um, I think our moderator will be monitoring any questions that you want to send in during the course as you think of things as I'm giving this lecture. And at the end, we will have time for question and answer. So having said that, what I'll do now is switch over to the presentation itself and we will get started. And I would like to thank um, the um, outreach department here at IWP for and the engagement for putting and giving me this opportunity. So let's go ahead and get started. Okay, um, if Armand, can you tell me if you are seeing what you need to see on the screen? Yes, you're good. The, cover, the first introductory cover slide? Yes. Okay, perfect. So what I wanna to talk to you today, um, and before we get through this, I've got some disclaimers I need to do, but I wanna talk about Reagan's Cold War and the paradigm shifts that occurred as a result of his, um, statesmanship. Um, I think everyone acknowledges at this point in time, since we've had enough time for history to give us um, insights into Reagan as a governor, a governance and statesman, that he really had a way to create um, negotiations. He had a, um, a, an extremely uh, acute talent for that. 
And the reason that's important is because of um, how it changed the world we operate in. So I'm gonna go ahead and flip to the next slide and let's talk about where I'm gonna be taking you on this um, trip. Um, first of all, I need to give you a disclaimer. Um, because I still actively am employed by the US intelligence community, the National Intelligence University and the Director of National Intelligence, I'm required to give the disclaimer saying that the what I'm about to present to you is my own academic research and it does not necessarily represent the views of the National Intelligence University, the Director of National Intelligence, the um, Defense Intelligence Agency or the intelligence community. Um, at, now that that administrative matter is done, the every con all of the content is openly available unclassified, which is also another administrative thing I need to take care of. Um, I want to during the course of this um, 30 minutes or so of lecture, I wanna talk about the Reagan administration and why it was such a paradigm shift for the indications and warning intelligence community. Um, I'm then gonna talk about what needs, um, how the INW community came, in, um, came into a situation where they were having an identity crisis and for reasons I'll discuss later and how I then entered into the picture as a new young second lieutenant um, in the Air Force as an Air Force intelligence officer and how my research for the rest of my 30 years career has repeatedly come back to this theme of trying to grapple with the problem of doing analysis and, forecast and forecasting in this post-Reagan, post-Cold War era um, new age reality. So I then will talk to you about the, a potential new way ahead for indications and warning analysis um, that um, I have been researching very seriously now since 2008, but based on the roots of my own history and past. Um, and then I'll finish up with questions. So with that said, let's keep moving along. And I wanna first talk about the Reagan era. Um, his era is important, especially for indications of morning intelligence, because the talent of his statesmanship, both on the international arena, as well as the ability we enjoyed during the entire domestic front, resulted paradigm shift. Why do I say that? Um, in order to understand that, you need to, to know a, a little bit about his administrative background. I would imagine that most of you ha do have some grounding in that, but just in case there are those here who do not, I'll talk about it. I want to bookend by talking about what the world looked like when he was first taking office during that first year, and then also what um, was happening during the last year and how things had changed. And um, so for the first year, if you remember, when he took office, it was within hours of his, his taking office, the Iranians um, had released the, um, the Iranian hostages. They had been taken hostage under the Carter administration and um, it was actually a political point that they would not release them until uh, he actually took office. The same year um, that he um, 
took office within three months. He was within two months in March. He was um, there was the assassination attempt with him. Um, we were a, a world and a country that was exiting the Vietnam era and the instability of that conflict. The United States was going to be entering into a peace dividend, what became a peace dividend. And because of all the body bag counts um, re relating and, um, and from Vietnam, the American public over the course of his peaceful, largely peaceful administration in terms of military violence, um, there became a no tolerance um, cultural sense in our populace um, for military casualty and body bags. Um, for those who only understand the post 9-11 reality where um, the society and the populace does understand that um, military conflict does result in casualties, that may be, be a bit of um, something that you don't really wouldn't have a grasp of. But you have to understand that back during his administration, American public had been so burned from Vietnam that we really re had uh, a time where the thought of um, no military life, one military life lost is one too many. Um, and that was played upon and taken advantage of by some of our adversaries. And I'll get into that in, in a little while as well. Um, at the end and during the peaceful time of his, largely peaceful time of his um, presidency, we then moved to all of the diplomatic and um, international po um, politics initiatives that he undertook to try to break down the Cold War and the polarity, the bipolar superpowers construct. It was successful enough and it had already begun during that first year of his presidency. But by the last year of his presidency, we started seeing things like perestroika and then the collapse of the Soviet Union. In essence, Reagan's administration moved us from our reality of the Cold War to a new world construct. And that's where the indications and warning community came into an identity crisis. The reason I say that is because the methodology that was being used for indications and warning intelligence prior to this, um, ever since the first, second world war through the fifties and the entirety of the cold war was focused on doing indications and warning for um, military, political, nation state conventional forces scenarios. We had an exceptionally good um, indications and warning um, methodology that um, circled around the use of monitoring um, the and tracking military, political, and conventional forces activities um, and doing it in a very scientifically based um, situation where we understood even um, we could and we could forecast when something was say two weeks out from potentially erupting in terms of violence um, one week out two days out even hours we had a very methodical scientifically based um, data-based model for doing indications and warning analysis but that indications and warning analysis methodology was predicated on the fact that the national security threat that most concerned us at this time was solely a nation state versus nation state scenario. 
Um, and our entire apparatus, intelligence apparatus, was designed to develop and collect indicators and indicator lists for nation-state versus nation-state conventional warfare violence. Um, when the Cold War broke down, the indications and warning um, community started, as we should have, um, questioning whether or not that mo model and methodology was still going to work. That was especially important because of the Iranian hostage crisis that actually is the front bookend of Reagan's administration. In, and there's a lot of information that is now publicly available since um, so much of that um, Iranian hostage classified data has been declassified and in fact is publicly available and it can now be found um, with open searches. Um, I, I know the website, it's actually the CIA library of unclassified or declassified data content that has been put out into the public arena for academic study purposes and because of Freedom of Information Act um, purposes. Um, and the thing is, and the front end of his, had we but known it at that time, the front end of his administration with that Iranian hostage crisis actually was giving us a foretaste of what the new post-Cold War environment was going to become by the end of his administration when perestroika occurred, the collapse of the Soviet Union occurred, and the Berlin Wall came down during the first year of um, President Herbert Walker Bush's, George Herbert Walker Bush's administration immediately after Reagan's. Um, and why do I say that? If you look at intelli the um, academic um, studies that have been done on the Iranian hostage situation and why it was an intelligence failure, one of the biggest findings um, that all of the intel failures analysts and academicians have found has shown that that crisis probably, and um, as an indications and warning problem, it was an intelligence community indications and warning failure, specifically because our, our intelligence community was designed to monitor and collect information about the actions and behaviors of the government itself, not the populaces. Um, and that is really where it, so it showed that um, when the Christ, Iranian hostage crisis, that was one of the first tastes we had had in a long time of a situation where a national security problem for the United States government was not a problem that originated from the actions and behaviors of the nation state government itself, but rather occurred because of actions and things that were happening inside that government's populace. And all of the academicians who have studied this have clearly come and shown that um, all of the analytic um, community um, intelligence analyst um, teams, both at CIA as well as the other intelligence organizations in the community at that time, were, were 
focused exclusively on the Iranian government's actions rather than the uh, Iranian populace, what was going in the, on inside the populace itself. Um, and as I move that, I want to talk about um, the concept of power versus force. And I also want to talk about nation state monopoly on power versus force. Political science um, theory and academia talks a lot um, about power versus force and nation state monopolies on power. Um, and in a realistic term, after, the world, after World War II and up to Reagan's administration, effectively from an international arena and especially from a U.S. national security construct, the, um, na the greatest national security threats of concern to the United States government were all threats posed by other nation states. Um, the nation states in the international arena had such a monopoly on force and power that we really didn't have to worry about um, during the 50s and the 60s even. We didn't worry so much about, um, from a national security standpoint, about actual populist, what I call bottom-up aggression and violence, um, as opposed to top-down violence, which is a nation state um, operating against its own populace, or um, lateral violence where one nation state is going up against another nation state. So I want you to be aware of um, the power versus force factors, because I'll be talking about those a little bit more. And the fact that with the de um, disintegration of the Cold War era and the superpowers, bipolar power construct, um, power ended up becoming much more atomized and decentralized away from, from nation states to the, the degree that now today, even individual lone wolf actors can make such an impact in our globalized internet and hyper interlinked world that an individual and the power and force of an individual can affect national security in a way today that it could not do during this pre-internet, pre optimized globalization world. So his administration pushed us towards that um, paradigm shift, um, which even became stronger when you start talking about um, the internet era, the globalization and hyper interconnectivity of our planet today. Because of that, Indications and Mornings um, and that community's identity crisis has ever since moved us um, in the intelligence community to question what is the new methodology for Indications and Warning. And from the end of Reagan's administration to 9-11, we quietly um, grappled with that and still had not found a way forward. 9-11 and the attack by Al-Qaeda clearly showed us the importance of having to try to figure this out. And that takes us to our next step. So in the post-Reagan era problem and reality, and particularly the post-Reagan era, which post 9-11, we began in the intelligence community and also in academia to understand that when it came to um, 
violence, societal aggression and violence, that nation state violence was not the only problem we were going to have to deal with. We were now going to have to start dealing with these things called non-state actors. And then later on and now today, we even know that we have to be able to grapple with and understand um, power and violence even when it comes down to a lone wolf entity, but usually a lone wolf entity who is working a group-based um, agenda. So after 9-11, especially the indications and warning community and the um, intelligence analysis community came very quickly to understand that there were these things that we called underlying causes of violence and that the, that the, un, that the, terrorist groups than any of these non-state actors were actually able to gain their power and to attract the force, the actual kinetic forces they needed to push their um, propaganda, their rhetoric, their agendas, and their powers forward by recruiting something that gave them power that wasn't tanks and ships. And that in fact, there were things called underlying causes and drivers in society that these non-state actors were using as propaganda and rhetorical mechanisms to attract recruits and to attract resources and financing that enabled them to gain the power that they did to go up against the big man, the nation state actor. Um, we know and understood that the, there were underlying causes in society that gave them their We went to the community point um, had actually already become a trained indications and warning officer. I actually, and if anyone knows Dr. Thomas there at the Institute of World Politics, this is a shout out to him because he provided me my very first foundation in indications and warning intelligence um, methodology and analysis as a discipline. Um, as a second lieutenant, I entered on to active duty. Um, there at the very end of the Reagan era, right as um, President Bush the first was taking office. And I was after finishing intelligence school with the Air Force as a second lieutenant intelligence officer. One of the first things um, that happened is I was sent to um, this thing called the newly stood up Defense Intelligence College run by the Defense Intelligence Agency to take a course in indications and warning analysis. Um, and oddly, and um, strangely enough, we have found out in trading notes that Dr. Thomas was my instructor. This was back in 1990. As a green second lieutenant, I was then sent out to my first combat assignment in the Philippines to become an indications and warning duty analyst, um, uh, an indications and uh, warning alert center duty officer inside a combat zone at, in the Philippines. And I arrived very green and idealistic and very energized to execute the methodology as had been taught and as was being used now um, at that time um, 
which was the methodology of the pre-Reagan era Cold War indications and warning protocol. Um, and it was really interesting because I showed up that first um, month when I was standing the watch and I was very geared up to use those indicator lists according to the way that Dr. Thomas had taught me for um, you know, all of these military activities and indicators. And the first thing I was told as I came, um, came up uh, and was being trained, I was patted on the head both by the NCOs and the senior officers and said, we understand that that's the textbook way to do indications and warning, but that does not work when your main problem set is an asymmetric one, i.e. a terrorist one. Um, that was my first exposure to the change. I did not realize that I was actually seeing living history, indications of morning history in change. But the reality was that as early as 1990, um, the indications and warning offices throughout the world and throughout the US intelligence community, whether they were military or civilian, were no longer using the old style um, indicators method and approach that had been used during the Cold War. Um, and that's where we moved forward. We started, we were watching other indicators. And I didn't even know at the time that those were other indicators. We just knew that we had to watch and monitor other things than what I had been taught need, with, that we needed to be monitored. I will tell you that what I'm gonna be talking about here is extremely complex and very multi-layered. And I'm now gonna move on to, well, what do we do about this? If we know there's these things called underlying causes, and we know that it's extremely complex and multi-layered, and we know that the kind of information and the data that had been being studied and monitored is no longer working, well, what do we do? And that's where we're going to start taking a look at going forward. Um, I grappled with this um, and a lot of it between, um, a lot of that between 1990 when I was an INW officer for 12 terrorist groups who were all working inside the Philippines um, to try to destabilize that government and push the United States out. From 1990 up through the Gulf War and up to 9-11, we still had not grappled with that asymmetric and integrating asymmetric um, indications and warning, asymmetric problem set indications and warning into the INW um, protocols. So 9-11 occurred. We then found that really quickly that these things called underlying core social drivers of violence were what the terrorist groups were using to build their power. But the problem was whenever we um, would go into a meeting, we had analysts, mo many of which, many of whom had very different academic um, disciplinary backgrounds. Some had their bachelor's and graduate um, study in the discipline of economics, some in political science, some in international relations, some in psychology, some in um, sociology. And one of the first things that became frustrating was that depending on what briefing, what organization, what agency you went to, everyone started talking about these things called underlying drivers. But when they would present their list of drivers, everyone's list was different. And 
as an analyst, I'm sitting here going and saying to myself, well, if everyone's list is different, how do we know which, whose list is right? And if everyone's indicator list of underlying core drivers of um, non-state violence, if they're different, then and they run and they gather data according to the different things and categories on their list, and they come up with findings for their policymakers, there is it no surprise then that their findings, recommendations, and opportunities analysis diverge to such a degree that they were that they were diverging. Um, and this had went on for a long time from 19 uh, from 2001 with the um, 9/11 attack up through now I'm bringing you to 2008. Um, and it just kept going. We had the low intensity conflict that was occurring and started in 2003 and with the war inside Iraq. We had the continual problems with our um, operations inside Afghanistan, where we were dealing with non-state actor insurgent and terrorist groups who were trying to um, be come up go up against the United States. Um, the military had flexed from a conventional military um, scenario where all of our equipment was postured for um, primarily a conventional warfare scenario against another nation state to what we called an expeditionary military that was postured with light infantry forces and light um, um, forces who could operate and maneuver against um, against um, small insurgent and asymmetric um, scenarios and conflicts. And so I was actually sent as an analyst um, in 2008, and that brings this, me to the slide I'm presenting to you now. I was um, sent as an analyst to inside Iraq um, to do counterterrorism insurgency operations support in that country for the warfighters who were doing the tip of the spear, um, most elite of operations. And I came away after that time in country understanding and having a very personal and first person feel for um, some of these societal issues. And I started um, continuing to ask these questions that had been um, on my mind ever since 9-11 when I was um, an Al-Qaeda and Taliban target development officer inside the Pentagon for um, the 9-11 uh, conflict in Afghanistan. And I, I came up with a research idea um, and, a, and a project that I wanted to pose to the Director of National Intelligence's Exceptional Analyst Research Fellowship Program. And it had to do with the military-aged male and youth bulge in the greater Middle East Maghreb and um, majority Sunni Muslim world, excluding Indonesia. Um, and I, was, I put together a proposal and was actually competitively selected as a DNI Exceptional Analyst Research Fellow to study this problem, everything that I'm talking about. How do we analyze this? How do we forecast it? How do we do strategic analysis for it? And I had the luxury of being fenced away from the, um, the chaos that is bench strategic analysis work 
and supporting our policymaker and our warfighters, warfighters, I was fenced away for an entire year and allowed the luxury of being able to study everything that academia had to tell us about macro societal and macro human violence on a nation state impactful level. And I grounded myself in the, in the body of all the body of violence theory from international relations, the body of theory from political science, from sociology, the body of theory from the emerging terrorism discipline and the intelligence studies discipline. I pulled together and started testing all of these theories about violence behaviors um, at a macro societal level. And I started coming up against some theories called open systems theory by Case Spear and Thomas, which um, is a theory that explains um, the importance of what's going on in the environment around the terrorist groups and the non-state actors that gives them their power. Um, GERS, relative deprivation theory, um, all of the different um, theories in political science for um, violence behaviors, the fact that biology, neurology, neuroscience, evolutionary, evolutionary um, theory, all of the um, disciplines inside of academia were trying to contribute to the asymmetric violence and warfare scenario and the non-state actor violence scenario. And from all of this study, I actually created a method and a theory um, to do analysis and societal forecasting for both a strategic analysis um, capability as well as an indications and warning ability. Having been grounded in the old school indications and warning methodology and protocol, um, a lot about that appealed to me because it was a very quantitatively based method. Um, and that really appeals to me because as an analyst, that removes bias when you can actually um, start looking at things from a more quantitative as opposed to a more qualitative and subjective way. Um, so now from here on out, I want to talk to you about that new way forward for indications and warning analysis, doing macro societal violence and aggression forecasting and analysis. And I'm, then I'll talk about its implications. When I look at this problem set, um, I look at it as we need to understand the societies because the societies are now have power that they give to the non-state actors or the lone wolves. Um, I talk, when I view a society, I view a society very much like uh, it's a human body. And it can be in a state of ease or the society can be in a state of dis-ease. And if I know what drivers um, or indicators um, are the best indicators of a predisposition towards violence because they are in a state of dis-ease, then I now have the ability to start capturing and measuring and monitoring that. So when I think of a society, again, for me, it's, it is an organism. And 
the drivers are what I consider to be symptoms um, of, a, of a state of dis-ease. And if you start thinking very much like a medical background and with this COVID um, scenario going on, I think you guys may have a better way to um, um, see what the, the visual picture that I'm seeing is if you were to think that um, the presence of terrorism in a society is the equivalent of a fever and the presence of, say, social unrest is the equivalent of a, of a rash, um, revolution and coup, the equivalent of muscle aches, and that if you start seeing terrorism, social violence, then you can actually understand what the underlying disease is that is causing the societal dis-ease. And if you can break out the individual components of those drivers that are, are pushing this, you can then actually isolate the, the underlying disease, which is the virus or the bacteria or the amoeba, um, that we can then as a government and as intelligence analysts monitor for change, for increase and decrease, and, for, um, it, uh, and then for um, telling our practicable opportunities and warning. So what I can talk about now, and I'll show you how this works. I actually had to find some sort of a framework for um, doing, um, for, to use for this and to ground my theory on and all the understanding I developed. And I chose Maslow. The reasons I chose Maslow. Number one, Maslow's theory of motivation, otherwise known as hierarchy of needs theory, has stood the test of time. Maslow's hierarchy of needs theory has been accepted across almost every discipline I've encountered. Whether I'm in psychology, um, scholarly works, whether I'm in political science, whether I'm in international relations, um, justice and law enforcement academia, um, everyone has accepted and uses his theory. If you understand Maslow, you know that his theory and all of his work was designed to understand normal human behaviors and be very aware human violence and macro societal violence is a normal human response behavior, especially when there are predisposing frictions or predisposing stressors present. Violence becomes the legitimate mitigating action for the presence and to resolve the, the stress that a society is feeling. So the one thing I learned when I read Maslow's theory, and by the way, if you think you understand Maslow's theory, you may not, because even though his theory is taught at the high school level, it's very often taught incorrectly. It's much more complex than um, the way it's presented in the average high school and even in some undergraduate college um, courses. First thing you need to understand, deprivation is a negative motivator. Deprivation and the presence of de deprivation puts a society into a state of dis-ease as opposed to a society who is in a state of ease. Any organism, organization, or society 
must be viewed holistically because Maslow and his theory clearly showed us that multiple factors are always concurrently operating. Multiple potential stressors, factors, and underlying cause variables are concurrently active and interlinked, interaffecting each other. So it's extremely complex. Um, they have to be understood in the context one with the other. Um, you have to understand, and Maslow told us that all humans and organisms and societies are perpetually wanting entities. That is a reality of human existence. Um, you also have to understand that no underlying, underlying cause can be treated in isolation. You have to understand them in isolation, but once you understand them, then you have to actually evaluate them in the context of all of the other causes and variables that also are concurrently present around them. And then I want to talk about immutable factors here at the very end. So what does this look like? Because right now this sounds very esoteric and confusing. Um, let's go on. Um, and I'm going to go past this slide because I really want to get to the meat and potatoes. For those who may not um, remember Maslow, if you remember his, um, his um, system has tiers. The bottommost one is the physiological tier. He called that tier one. Safety issues for a human were tier two. Love and belonging, tier three, esteem, tier four, and self-actualization, um, which is actually a misnomer. Um, Self-well-being is the term that he later in life preferred to use for the, the top tier, tier five. And the reason for that is because self-actualization um, created a lot of misunderstanding. If you notice, the physiological are the most basic of human needs. Then you overlay safety on top of it then issues of, of love and belonging, esteem and self, and then um, well-being. If, when I looked at this, it occurred to me as I was studying and reading his theory in detail that um, it occurred to me that all violence begins in the same place, whether it is individual violence or whether it is macro societal violence up to an, and including nuclear war. It includes in the human mind. The motivations of a human, of a human or of a group called a government, which is a, a group of humans, whether that is group behavior, whether that is nation state behavior, terrorist group behavior, non-state actor behavior, individual behavior, city behavior, gang behavior, it all starts in the same place. It starts in the human brain. And it, it becomes more layered and complex, but it all starts in the same place. And if Maslow was trying to understand human motivation behavior at the individual level, then I had to ask myself, is it possible that Maslow's um, method and his construct could be applied and translated into a group societal level. And that's the first thing I worked to do. So this is what he called it when he was talking about a human as a, about 
the motivations for behavior at, a, at an individual human level. And so I said, is it possible that we can apply him and use him as a framework, but apply it and translate it into a macro societal level for intelligence and U.S. policy indications and warning support purposes? And that resulted in this. So how did I do that? The first thing I did was I went and, oh, by the way, I'm not the only person who's done this. Um, there are some social psychologists who have also translated Maslow into a social society um, measurement gauge and construct. Uh, one was an academician who did a study monitoring and measuring Australian well, social well-being um, using his model. There's been another um, where someone actually used his model to study well-being inside prison populaces. And then there's another um, project that actually took two, 12 different countries and um, 12 different countries, and they tried to um, translate at the country level what each thing in his model would be from a societal standpoint. And when, when it once translated, measure each of those things and come into a societal well-being and potential for violence analysis for 12 different countries. And they did that back in 2010. Um, so I can't claim that that's original, but I am the first one who came to the conclusion that if it can, if you can translate that into a way to study the best outcome and well-being of society, you can also then flip it and use it to study the inverse, which is the worst of human society and um, human social violence outcome. So effectively, what I did was I took his um, tiers, his four tiers. Um, physiological safety, love, well-being, esteem, and self-actualization. And starting from the bottom left going up, I said, what would the societal equivalent of that term be? So physiological needs for a human become societal physiological needs. Safety becomes societal security needs. Love and belonging becomes societal cohesion needs. Um, esteem becomes societal confidence needs. And self-actualization or well-being becomes societal elevation, evolution and improvement needs. And then if you take and you look at, well, what is the equivalent to breathing, food, water, sex, sleep, homeostasis, excretion, et cetera, if you go to each of those variables that are called out there, I can actually equate those to the societal equivalent for each of those. And for example, homeostasis becomes transportation. Um, the reason for that is inside the human body, homeostasis is all about maintaining fluid level balance across and throughout the body. Well, our transportation industry is the equivalent that for our, of that for our society. And in this new COVID world, we've very easy, easily and quickly seen how um, breakdown of transportation becomes a big issue. When it's working well, we tend not to think about it. But when it starts malfunctioning and not working well, we, sh we, we see how society becomes so consumed by it. And so I did that and I translated and created a model. 
And then for each of these, once I looked, I started saying, okay, in this now hyper interconnected information over um, internet information oversaturation world, we now have immense bodies of data that uh, and assessments and analyses from think tanks and all kinds of um, both corporate um, venture capitalist firms on all of these different variables, transportation, healthcare, employment, freedom of the press, freedom of expression, graft and corruption. So we have the ability to gather for each individual cell in the grid that you see to your left, we can actually gather both quantitative and qualitative data. For the qualitative data, we can create a quantifying um, coding schema to translate the qualitative data into a numeric equivalent. And we can then start aggregating and um, creating multiple data sets for each cell, multiple studies on transportation, multiple studies, and then doing um, averaging to make sure and to get rid of bias. And we can actually come into a situation where I can create for my policymaker, who's very accustomed to seeing what I call stoplight charts, which is what this is. And I can then um, look at each cell and I can come to an assessment about what the state of predisposing ease or dis-ease is for that particular variable. So for example, in this um, pro forma one, you can see that transportation is at 50%. It's neither bad nor it's neither good. Um, sanitation, pollution, gender balance on the bottom row are really bad. And um, you can see things like freedom of expression, religious freedom, and research and development. These are very healthy and good. So I can actually start engaging from an indications and warning context because if I can gather this kind of data and build these kinds of assessments for these kind of indicators, um, I can now monitor for change in these indicators. And for the, what I, this is called a country footprint, and when, how, when and how that footprint is going to become more red than green or more green than red. It's also useful because for my governing policymakers who now have to create diplomatic programs, US aid programs, military planning or civil affairs planning, I can actually tell them if you have scarce resources, sir, you may want to create programs um, for sanitation and pollution, and you don't need to weigh, um, to expend as much um, scarce monetary resources against, say, research and development mitigation or social inclusion, equal rights mitigation, depending on what the data shows. So this becomes the new version of an indicators and forecasting model and chart. I can now create a snapshot of the of the present. Using historical data, I can actually create historical snapshots of what it used to be look like, um, what it now looks like. And because we have futures projection assessments from so many think tanks, and we know that there are um, experts out there who are doing pollution, what is the future of pollution in 20 years? What are the, the future water supply in 10 years? Um, we can actually quantify those and we can actually use that for a forward-looking 
forecasting and um, warning perspective. So this actually becomes the model itself. And I've been working using this model and this approach now with graduate thesis students who have been taking this model and creating case studies for country X during, um, for example, um, the majority Muslim countries the year before the Arab Spring erupted. What did that footprint look like? I can, I, I then, those files with my phone. If you remember, I told you that, don't understand that in Maslow, all of these variables are always co-present and co-active. I now have to create mathematical formulas for how to do the weighting about how those factors at the bottom row affect and pull down the raw score weighting of the factors above it. When, so what that means, and this is what Maslow tells us, is that if on that bottom row, societal, physiological, when you have dis-ease there, not only does that dis-ease cause that particular cell, for example, transportation, to turn to red, but every cell in every row above it also gets degraded by a weighting factor because the governments and the people in, living in those societies become so consumed with trying to address their most basic physi societal physiological needs that they don't have as much time to work towards um, religious freedom and so forth. So um, we created that and we've been working ever since um, 2008, 2010. I've been working on developing the formulas, um, the um, mathematical interlinkage and interrelational formulas for this model and um, identifying and finding all of the underlying data sets to use so that this model can be applied to any country, any region, any continent, or the entire globe. And let me show you what that can look like. And as I show you what that can look like, I'm going to show you by isolating on two variables that were in this first um, grid, and one is that one of them is gender balance, and the other is age balance. In Maslow, gender balance is the equivalent of sex, and um, age balance comes up into the love and belonging tier. But I wanted to isolate on those, and I became very interested in those because of the concern I had that those two variables in this model could potentially be almost completely immutable or totally immutable from a government response perspective. And I'll talk about that. And this is to give you an example of some of the ways that this data can be used um, as you're giving your warnings forecasting to your policymaker. And I'm gonna slide past this, um, go past this slide because I wanna really get to the beef, so to speak. Um, this is, a chart, it's 2017 data, which, rep, which gives a sense of both age and gender balance for the Maghreb. And um, one of the things that I do a lot of time working on, and I'm not gonna have as much time as I want, is that bottom line is I can show that we now have 
in North Africa, we have 955,000 males in the unmatched male column for whom there is no equivalent corresponding female. And if you start talking about a basic societal physiological means uh, need, that means there are almost a million males in the 15 to 29 year old, which is the um, age group that um, academia understands and that is most responsible for violence. And they, um, they have no corresponding potential or no ability potentially for the normal hearth, home, wife, job, 2.5 kids, a station wagon and a dog existence and reality. They have no fut conventional future because there is no corresponding unmatched female. So this is one way that I can look at and talk about and engage our policymakers about, well, what is the gender balance and what effect is that going to have on societal violence um, in all of its forms, whether that be unrest, um, revolution, coup, uprising, terrorism, or, or et cetera. So this is just to give you one, and I'm not going to talk about all, what all of the others. There's so much I could talk about. I could do an entire um, briefing on this chart alone, and I want to go through. But, you know, well, can they go somewhere? Maybe they can out-migrate. Well, if you look at the majority Sunni Muslim world, no, they're not going to, if they move, they cannot move away from this problem because they would just be moving to another part of the world that's already in a situation with other unattached males who have no hope for a future. And therefore, they've got no reason to, and to go on. So what about the rest of the world? Well, with the numbers for Western Europe in 2017, and the numbers for the United States, and even the numbers for the globe itself, in the world in 2017, you can see they just don't have much of a future. And if they don't have these young males just entering into a life who have no investiture in the societies as it exists, then they have no reason not to be um, have say, well, you know what? I'll just throw the baby out with the bathwater. Let's get rid of the what what is not working for me. Their dis-ease in terms of gender balance cannot be mitigated. So, and then. I, of course, understanding I, can only, I can't look at this variable in isolation, but as I look towards that footprint, I now have a model to engage and discuss each of those variables, much like I've shown how I can discuss the gender balance variable here with our policymakers to decide what mitigating actions or programs can be put in place and also to make projections um, and there are other things on this chart, chart that enable me to make forecast projections forward. Um, and I can actually start engaging with our policymakers on doing that and coming up with some usable conclusions on policy and programs from an opportunities analysis standpoint. The bottom line here is I do believe that um, indications and warning forecasting and analysis is possible in this new age and something in this line is what is going to be necessary. Clearly, I believe that I have actually tested this across the body of academic theory to give the um, most fidelity and credence to it, but um, we definitely want to um, 
go somewhere in this direction in this post Reagan's post Cold War era in how we do indications and warning intelligence and forecasting and what kind of indicators we need to be looking at. So with that, I'm going to stop and we can go to questions. You have some questions coming in. Um, we have one from Facebook. How did President Reagan view American-Iraqi relationship through Iraqi-Iranian tension in the Arab Gulf? So um, I'm not really a historian, but I can't, I mean, so when I tell you this, um, and understanding that um, when Reagan was in office, it was before I had entered active duty, um, my exposure to the Iran-Iraq war was much through the same um, news sources, but the policy of the United States at that time, um, we clearly saw Iran as um, the, par the party in that conflict that was um, least um, in our interests, we clearly saw that at that point that um, Saddam Hussein in Iraq, little did we know, was um, more of the direction that Reag the Reagan administration wanted to support. But for the most part, I believe the Reagan administration tried to remain fairly neutral. I think from just the United, not necessarily, the United States perspective, as long as Iran and Iraq were completely consumed with each other, then we didn't have to worry about them. Does that help? <laughs> yeah, thank you. Um, we have another question here from Kurt Kloon. When dealing with non-state actors, especially lone wolves, for indication warning, is it valid to assume rational decision-making, which my understanding of Maslow's theory depends? Okay, that's a really good question, and when I um, outstanding question, and when I have this discussion with my um, students, one of the first things I have to tell them is that you have to understand when an attack occurs by a lone wolf, um, the first thing you have to determine, and the first thing that law enforcement, any law enforcement who is investigating it, has to determine, is what type of a crime is is it? Is it mass murder? Or is it terrorism? Is it politically motivated? Um, Maslow was describing human behavior. And one of the first things that I say is that there, violence does occur that is not normal human behavior. In psychology, we talk about clinical behaviors, which means behaviors as a result of mental illness, including outlier personality. And we talk about non-clinical behavior, which is normal human behavior. So behavioral psychology focuses on human behavior that is considered non-clinical, not as a result of mental illness. And so when a law enforcement entity, whether that's a federal, international, or state entity, the first thing they have to do is determine motivation for the act. And if the motivation for the act is determined to be not of a political nature, political agenda, or based on a mental illness or a criminal matter other than terrorism or a group propaganda, then they categorize it. Every country in the world categorizes that as mass murder. They will not categorize that as terrorism. So when you start looking at that, the forecasting model that I look at and that I use is only trying to gauge 
and measure lone wolf or asymmetric actor, whether it is an individual, small group, or a large group, or non-state actors, when it is a politically driven and agenda-based action. So that's why the Gabby Gifford shooting falls in a very different category from um, the uh, Boston bombing. And that's also why, for example, the Las Vegas shooter, we still have not called that a terrorist act because our law enforcement has yet to be able to identify the motivation. What was motivating that um, gentleman when he did that mass shooting? So right now, and we haven't investigated because he died and we didn't have to investigate for a trial. So, um, it, that, but again, that, that question is outstanding because it clearly shows the importance of understanding motivation in these acts. And this um, construct is for indications warning um, for politically based national security types of um, actions. We have another question here from um, Professor Danis. He goes, I have a softball question for you. <laughs> Do you think that terrorism posed a particularly vexing INW problem for the Reagan administration, starting with the 1983 twin mass casualty bombings of the U.S. Embassy and Marine Barracks in Beirut? Then the administration was constantly playing catch up and trying to stay ahead of the terrorist threat, particularly that emerging from the Middle East. What are your thoughts on this? I absolutely agree, um, Professor Danis Aaron. Um, uh, he's a um, for those. He's also a colleague both here at IWP, and we both also teach at the National Intel University together. So thank you for that question. Yes, I think the Reagan administration had already come into contact with this asymmetric power factor and variable that was entering into national security issues. Um, the bombing that Professor Danis talks about is a beautiful example of it. I didn't talk about that because I chose to use that bookends theme, first year, last year of the administration. But both the Iranian hostage um, scenario as well as um, the Lebanese bombing showed the degree to which the um, dynamics were changing and pivoting during his administration. And it also shows the degree to which um, the intelligence community at that time simply had not gotten a grasp on it and figured out how to deal with it. So I thank you very much, Aaron. I really appreciate that's a beautiful example. And if you don't mind, I'll be using that one in future in some of my classes. Another question here from Ewan Grant. Who is listening to you about this enormously important gender balance, which I think has re relevance regarding Chinese policy in defense and security? Yeah, um, gender balance most, and it's clearly the person asking it is, um, and it is very well informed because it is a very big problem in China as well as India. And in fact, most people only think that it's a problem inside India and China. But as you can see, based on what I've shown you, it really is a problem across the entire globe, every continent, every country. Um, and I've got an entire um, separate briefing and presentation that and, uh, even to include why is it that we're having that problem? Is it much a for the 2000s, 
um, which I have an um, answer for, but I won't go into. But um, in terms of who is listening to me on this, um, I'm in the process of writing some of that stuff up. And my hope is that in working with IWP and also with um, the research center, I'm now on a sabbatical with the NIU's research um, center on a research sabbatical to write some of this stuff up to show that this that specific single variable is really something we need to be paying attention to and more than just in the um, Chinese and Indian context. Um, I have been presenting on that issue um, in various academic fora since I think it was 2011 or 2012. Um, I usually present on it in, one was an Africa and Middle East conference a Middle East Academic Society conference. Um, I also um, presented on it at something called the International Society for Research on Aggression conference. Um, but other than that, most of my work has only ever up until now, and actually this is the first time other than um, in Department of Defense closed government employee briefings and intelligence community briefings, this actually is the first um, internet footprint that that topic of mine will have. I believe we have time for one more question um, from an anonymous attendee. Excellent application of multiple theories. It would seem that within the gender balance example during the lecture, a more Western view of life structure slash opportunity was discussed. How are the societal mores of the target country slash society accounted for within your model? It, yeah, it's very good that you mentioned that. And in fact, my choice, I've actually had discussions of my model inside um, my colleague forum in the National Intelligence University and also inside IWP, trying to get at all of those different cultural um, variables, many of whom were on the top level, um, but also within the age about, you know, the fact that coming of age to adulthood is different in different countries. And one of the reasons I chose 15 to 29, um, it's oddly enough, my, one of my regional spe African specialist professors challenged me on that because in Africa, coming to adulthood is often much earlier than 15 to 29. Um, what I've done is, and the way I um, defend that is that 15 to 29 is the evener age group for the military-aged male across cultures. And yes, in Africa, there is the younger outlier years um, that um, I'm not capturing. And in other societies, the upper end outlier years beyond 29, say 29 to 35 are not being captured. But by going with the age 15 to 29, I'm actually and understanding the statistics of the entire planet and the statistics of countries, that age group itself nonetheless gives me a good statistically legitimate um, analysis point. And, and so I, I clearly acknowledge, for example, um, you know, in the African scenario, but I, since I'm trying to develop a universal model that can be used regardless of country or spot on the earth on this planet, um, I needed to find and come for each one of those variables with what the 
um, center of gravity range was for whatever variable I'm talking about. Great. Well, I think that's all the time we have. I would like to thank you, Professor Almont, for joining us today and in, um, providing this wonderful information for us. And additionally, I'd like to thank all of you who tuned in here on Zoom and Facebook. If you're interested in attending other upcoming webinar events, supporting IWP, or applying to one of our graduate programs, please go to iwp.edu. Again, that's iwp.edu. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's an honor and a pleasure.